Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come now to open your word, God, we are thankful for the time of fellowship, of singing, of encouraging one another that we've already been permitted to have here this morning. We're thankful that you are a God who are worthy of worship and worthy of all that we can bring, all that we can offer, and so much more. God, we pray that you would use this time to encourage us, to help us, to to uh, direct our hearts and minds toward you as we consider the uh, events of this week, as we consider the, the realities of uh, your son and what he came to accomplish, Lord. And uh, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today is Palm Sunday. It is uh, the day where we recognize, uh, remember, reflect upon uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And as we, we think about that, we, we encounter uh, a people who thought they were getting one thing when they were, in fact, getting uh, another. Uh, they, uh, as Jesus walked in, uh, rode in on the donkey, uh, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They saw him as a conquering warrior. They saw him as a, uh, a king who would uh, bring them deliverance, who would bring them uh, new experiences, who would bring them a, a new circumstance in life. And indeed, that's what he came to provide, but not in the way that they believed, not in the way that they expected, not in the way that they were hoping for. Um, they had a certain picture of the Messiah that they were leaning on. And that picture uh, led them to uh, misunderstand him, misunderstand what he came to do. This despite the fact that he had just spent the last three years explaining who he was, explaining what he came to do, explaining that his Messiahship was different, uh, was of a different nature, was focused on a different realm and a different reality. Um, one of the things that uh, we uh, encounter when we think about Jesus is our understanding of him. Who is he? And so uh, if I were to ask you this morning, what is your favorite image of Jesus, your favorite biblical portrayal or metaphor for Jesus uh, or his title? Um, some of you might say, my favorite's the Lion of Judah, that he is this conquering warrior, this one who uh, is all-powerful, the one who controls the realities of life and who uh, does so with, with vigor and strength and power and awesomeness. Some of you might say, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world, the one who comes in gentle and quiet, and yet powerfully. Some of you might lean on his portrayal, his description of himself as the I Am from the Gospel of John, the one who has always been. Some, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Some, the bread of life. Some, the living water. Some, the bridegroom who comes for his bride. Some, the living word of God. Or perhaps the bright and morning star. All of these are, are great images, portrayals, pictures of who Jesus is. But when I think of Jesus, 
perhaps the, the first image that comes to my mind. And I believe it's probably a, a primary image that comes to a lot of people's mind is that of the great shepherd. The one who leads and cares for and provides for his sheep. A little earlier we read from Psalm 23. It is a psalm that is a lot of people's favorite scripture. A lot of homes have it hanging somewhere uh, on their wall, or uh, a lot of people have had it memorized as, as part of their faith and their devotion and their walk. It's a psalm we hear read at a lot of funerals and memorial services. It's a psalm that we, that, uh, we teach to our children early on. And in that psalm, we have Jesus portrayed as a shepherd. God portrayed as the one who shepherds us, who leads us, who guides us. And as we continue our journey through Mark, we come to a place where the, the images, the ideas of Jesus as Messiah and as shepherd converge. As we think about the ideals, the ideas that people had about who he would be and what he would do as expressed on Palm Sunday, we, we encounter those repeatedly throughout his ministry as people viewing him as the one who provides for them, who would meet their needs. And Mark draws on that reality in two places, Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 8. And, and in these chapters, you have stories, accounts of Jesus feeding a great multitude. In Mark chapter 6, we read of his feeding of the 5,000. In Mark chapter 8, we read of him reading, uh, feeding the 4,000. So let's, let's read those two passages this morning, and then let's move into them in terms of how we understand Jesus and, and how Mark, I believe, is drawing on the picture of him as the great shepherd the one who leads and directs and helps his people, as opposed to the Messiah who's simply there to, to feed them or to, to, uh, to lead them into some great victory that they imagined being the case. Beginning in Mark chapter 6, verse 30, we read, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place, but many saw them leaving and recognized them. And they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, This place is a desert, and it is already late. Send them away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. You give them something to eat, he responded. They said to him, Should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups of, on the green grass. 
so that they sat down in the groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up twelve baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were five thousand men. Then in chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, In those days there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. And he called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, Where can anyone get enough bread here in the desolate place to feed these people? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Seven, they said. He commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground, taking the seven loaves. He gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he said, These were to be served as well. They ate and were satisfied. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there. He dismissed them, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now you have two accounts here of Jesus feeding these large crowds, these these numerous individuals. And they seem quite similar in in many ways, and and they are quite similar in many ways, uh, as we'll point out as we go through them. But there is one important difference that uh, we see and that we recognize that I think goes to the heart of what Jesus came to do and what Jesus came to accomplish. And that is the location of when these take place or where these take place. The first in chapter six, uh, we is found in the gospels, all four of the gospels. And Luke tells us that it took place at near the city of Bethsaida. That is, it's a city, it's, a, it's an area not too far from Capernaum, just uh, a little bit uh, away from there. And it was squarely in the Jewish section of Galilee. Um, and so Jesus there meets the needs, feeds the 5,000 Jewish followers that were there. The account in chapter 8, however, we're told toward the end of chapter 7 that uh, it takes place in the Decapolis. And so it takes place where the Gentiles dwelled, where the Gentiles lived. And you see Jesus here being the the one who ministers to, who reaches out to every nation, every tribe, every tongue. He is there to to lead and to direct and to guide both of these groups. And this is probably, uh, in my opinion, further highlighted by the, the baskets full that are left over. With the Jewish group, it says there's 12 baskets full. That, that again, probably represents, probably points toward the, the tribes of Israel. That, that Jesus there, it's a reflection that Jesus there is ministering to the 12 tribes. Whereas the, with the Gentiles, when they're through, it says that there were seven baskets full, reflecting the, the completeness, the thoroughness of his ministry, reflecting that, that he has brought to completion his task in ministering not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. But when we start to 
dig just a little bit deeper, especially into the account in chapter 6, we see, I believe, Mark categorizing, characterizing Jesus' actions here through the lens of Psalm 23. I, I think Mark is drawing on this well-known passage, a passage that's not just important to us today, a passage that's not just a part of our reflections and our beliefs and our attitudes about God today, a passage that was very significant to Israel in the Second Temple period as well. A passage that has always been significant because of how it portrays God, how it portrays the one that we serve as our shepherd. And when you look at Psalm 23, that first line, the Lord is my shepherd. A lot of times what we don't realize, because it doesn't come across very clearly in the English, is that the word shepherd there is a participle which means it's a, it's a verbal noun. Those of you who, who are, are English people out there, English grammar people, the participle is a verbal noun. That is, it's a noun that carries a, a verbal weight to it. It's an active noun. It's something that, that communicates uh, an activity. So uh, another way to translate it would be that the Lord is the one who shepherds me. Okay, He's the one who guides me. He's the one who directs me. Now, I don't know how much experience you have with shepherds or how many times you, you've seen them around, but uh, one of the things I discovered growing up is that shepherds in America are very different than shepherds in other parts of the world. Um, having grown up in, in southern Arizona, one of the things that I saw every winter was uh, sheep being moved around. That because our, our winters are very mild and beautiful uh, in southern uh, Arizona, um, a lot of people who had sheep up in the northern reaches of Arizona where it gets cold and where it snows and where it gets miserable, they would bring their sheep, they would transport their sheep down to the south, and they would feed off of the alfalfa crops and so forth that were there in that area. And watching that as a, as a kid, watching that as a teenager, um, I never really got the significance of Jesus being a shepherd from what I saw there. because. The way those shepherds worked with their sheep was to drive them. They, they would get their flocks that they would move from one field to another, and the shepherds would get behind them, and they would drive them. They'd have their sticks, they'd have their whistles, they'd have their other things, and, and they would basically scare the sheep to their next location. And you'd have shepherds over there and shepherds over there, and, and they would all just kind of make sure that they stayed in one direction. Some would be on horses sometimes. And they would, they would push them to where they were going. And, and there was nothing really gentle. There was nothing really precious. There was nothing really wonderful about what I saw a shepherd doing in that environment. And, and it really kind of puzzled me. Okay, Jesus is a shepherd. That means he pushes us around. <laughs> what exactly is going on there? But then early uh, in my married life, I got to take a trip to Israel, my first trip. I've, I've been a few times. Um, and when I was there, one of the things I saw were a shepherd with her sheep. And it was totally different, completely different. When the shepherd moved his sheep in that environment, the shepherd actually walked out in front of the sheep, and the sheep would follow. And he would whistle, or he would call out, or he would... Uh, say certain words, 
and, and those sheep would do exactly what the shepherd was telling them to do. And there wasn't any, you know, pushing, there wasn't any shoving, there wasn't any, you know, scaring the sheep into a certain direction. He would walk and they would follow. And, and he would spend time with those sheep. In the sheep that I saw growing up, that once the shepherds got them into the field, they they had the, the, the fence, the barbed wire around the, the, the sheep, and they just leave them there. And they would go do their own thing for however long until that field was cleaned out, and they'd come get the sheep and move them on. That's the shepherds in uh, the Near East, however, they stayed with the sheep day and night. They were there. They were always with those sheep. And, and as we think about that, that that's, that's such a, a clear picture of what it means to be a true shepherd that Jesus is versus the false shepherds that are so often described in Scripture. False shepherds are those who, who are pushed and frightened and, 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 and uh, manipulate their sheep into behavior. But Jesus, as a good shepherd, is one who comes in and ministers and, and who, who looks at his sheep with compassion. Notice that in both of our accounts this morning, in 6.34 and in 8.2, it says Jesus looked at the crowd and had compassion on them. And that idea, that picture of compassion is, is one of making other people's pain your own pain. Making what other people are going through something you're going through. It, it's, it's not just, it's not pity. It's actually active engagement with someone else's situation and going through that with them. And that's the shepherd we serve. That's the shepherd that we encounter. When the passage says, the Lord is my shepherd there in Psalm 23, and then you see Jesus responding to the people here in in Mark 6.34, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then it says what? He began to teach them. He began to be their shepherd. Just as with each of us who have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we've experienced that moment, that time, when through His grace, through His compassion to us, we experienced a transformation, a change from where we were to where we needed to be. And when he becomes our shepherd, he meets all of our needs. He meets us where we're at. The psalmist puts it this way, I shall not want or I shall lack for nothing, as some translations say. There's nothing I need. There's nothing I desire anymore because my shepherd is there. And I love how in both of these passages, you have just a, a simple sentence, 642, everyone ate and was satisfied. And, and the, the same word is repeated later on in, in chapter 8, that, that they ate and, and they were satisfied. They were filled. They, they, they found what they were looking for. They, they found what they were needing. Jesus had provided for them. As our shepherd, he meets our needs. He meets it in ways that we can't often imagine or, or can't often identify. 
We just know that He's there. We just know that He's seeing us through those times. He gives us not just our needs, however. He gives us the good things that we want quite often as well. The psalmist says, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. And it's this particular phrase, it's this particular passage that I think first caught my attention in terms of Mark's account. In verse 39, it says, Then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. Mark's the only one who uses that description. He's the only one that mentions the greenness of the grass. And, and it's all the more telling and all the more interesting because the disciples had just said what? This place is a desert. This place is a desert. Jesus has changed this desert into this field of grass. Not to say that a, a miracle happened. That, that, that's not necessarily suggested by the word, but it, it, it's a thematic emphasis that here in this desertous place where the, the provisions weren't available, where their needs couldn't be met, where the, nothing existed to, to feed them or to help them. That's what the, the disciples were getting at. Now, they were laying down. They were sitting down on green grass. They were about to be filled. They were about to be cared for and taken care of. And the image of the psalmist, the image of Mark here with, with the greenness is, is, the, is the image almost of luxury. In Psalm 23, the, the word that's used there to de describe the, the grass is actually fresh shoots of grass. One of my favorite things uh, about spring is is when when that that fresh new grass comes up. You know, it's been brown, it's been uh, for so long, and then all of a sudden you see this this fresh grass. And, and I don't know what type of grass it actually is, but there's this type of grass that that it comes up and, it, and it's like a carpet. And when you step on it, it just it just feels good. It just feels good. And I hope. Some point in your life, uh, and if not, it's the beginning of spring. Go, go search this out and do it. Find you a nice plush area of grass and just lay down in it, assuming you're not allergic to it. Okay, just lay down in it. There's a feeling that you get in that status, in that situation that you you really can't find anywhere anywhere else. There's a there's a coolness to the grass. There's a softness to the grass. There's a there's a comfort to the grass. And that's the image the psalmist is trying to draw out. He causes me to lie down in green grass. That's a picture of the life that we have in Jesus. It's a picture of the hope that he gives. That he came, what? To, to bring abundant life. To bring us from that desert to that place of plush enjoyment. He leads me beside still waters, restores my soul. Jesus here, the text has made much of the fact that, that he encounters this group right after getting out of the boat. And, and what kind of stands out to me, again, if you take into the, the full account of what Mark has been saying here, 
is that he's causing them to sit down, to rest in this grass next to the waters he himself had calmed. Just a, a few days earlier, we read in the text about how Jesus said, peace be still to the Sea of Galilee. And how Mark describes that peace, not just as the water calming down, but as a great calm, a great stillness. That Jesus had taken that rough and that, 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 that difficult sea and that difficult circumstance and situation, and he had calmed it completely. He had brought peace to it. And now, as he interacts with these people, as he engages these people, he causes them to sit down beside those very same waters. Jesus brings this peace to our life. He brings this peace to our circumstances and our situation, out of the storms of life, out of the difficulties that we face, and then invites us to sit down beside them, to enjoy, to remember, as we sang about earlier, all the things that he has accomplished in his grace and in his goodness. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, the psalmist tells us. And here in Mark, we're told what? The very first thing that Jesus did was to teach. The text tells us there in verse 34, he had compassion. He saw these people, sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them, and so he taught them. So he began to teach them. This is the primary need of mankind. This is the primary need of us, is to begin to understand who he is, to understand his nature, to understand his essence, to understand these images of him as a shepherd, but not just as a shepherd, but so much more, the Messiah, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, the Great I Am, the Alpha, the Omega, the Bread of Life, the Living Water, the Bridegroom, the Word, the Bright and Morning Star, all these images that we started with, all of these things that, that we hold on to about who He is, we need to understand them, we need to internalize them, we need to live in the power of what they tell us about our God. Jesus understood that, yes, they needed food. Yes, they needed provision. Yes, they needed sustenance. But what they needed more than anything else was Him. And so He taught them who He was. He taught them what He came for. He taught them who they could be and what they might accomplish through Him. As an educator, myself, one of my, my favorite things in the classroom is when I see students get it. They're sitting there a little puzzled, a little confused by what we're talking about, perhaps, maybe disinterested in what we're talking about, and then that light comes on, and you see it in their eyes, and you see that understanding start to settle in. That's when I know I've done my job. That's when I know I'm doing what I've been called to do. And while you may not be a teacher per se, or that may not be your profession, or that may not be your calling, each of us as believers is called to instruct others in the ways of righteousness, to make 
disciples is how Jesus described theirs. And that making disciples means meeting physical needs. It means meeting the needs of people who are hurting, who are who are lacking, who are who are in need of these other things. But most of what it means is teaching the truth about who Christ is. Because that's what's going to last. Daniel Webster once said something about this calling that each of us has. That is one of my favorite quotes concerning teaching. He says, if we work on marble, it will perish. If we work on brass, time will efface it. If we rear temples, they will crumble to dust. But if we work on men's minds, if we imbue them with high principles, with just fear of God and love of their fellow men, we engrave on those tablets something which time cannot efface and which will brighten and brighten to all eternity. To make disciples is to be an under-shepherd, to be one who leads the sheep, the lost sheep, to the true shepherd, to teach them of who he is, to, to tell them of what it's like to follow him. That is our calling. Jesus has given us the example. It's incumbent upon us to follow through on that. And one of the, the, the realities that, that we come to understand is that we can do that and we can express that. Why? Because to be Jesus' sheep is to be where with Him where we want to be. The sheep like to be near their shepherd. They, they like to be in His presence. Notice how both of these groups respond to Him. Chapter 6, verse 33, it says what? They chased him around the lake. I, I love that image. You know, Jesus is like, we've been busy here. Let, let's, get in the, let's get in the boat and go someplace else. So they get in the boat, and they start to row, and they're, they're moving across the lake. And you, you, you can just imagine as they're, as they're moving that you see this crowd of people, and they're just running this top speed across the top of the Sea of Galilee. we got to get there. Where's he going? I don't know, but we're going to make sure when he gets there, we're there first. And the text says that when that boat pulled up, the crowd was already there. That's what it's like to have a real relationship with Jesus. You want to be where he is. Chapter 8 tells us something quite similar, though, in a very different way. Jesus says what? These people need food. They've been with me. Three days. Three days. Out in the wilderness. Just to hear him talk. Just to hear him speak. We get a little worked up if the preacher goes anywhere near noon. Go the afternoon. Woo! Preacher, I'm just going to get him to walk out on you. You do that. Oh, to have a heart that recognizes the value of being in Jesus' presence. I struggle with it. 
I think we all struggle with it from time to time, but I think the reason we struggle with it is we don't always appreciate what it is we're getting when we're in His presence. We're like the people from Palm Sunday who thought we were getting one thing, but in fact, He's trying to provide something else. And so because our expectations as we see them are not met, we don't get excited about being in His presence. When instead, we need to redirect our mind, we need to refocus our attention on the one who has really ultimately given us everything we need. Not just in terms of uh, eternal salvation, but in terms of dealing with the difficulties of this life. Most of what we've looked at this morning is the first part of Psalm 23. That talks about Jesus' provision. That talks about Jesus uh, bringing us life and making us lie down in green pastures and the still waters, the peace and the hope and the joy and, and all that that's involved there. But what we need to understand, and I believe this is part of where Mark is going in, in, in alluding to, um, in, in mirroring, mirroring much of Psalm 23, is that if the first part of the psalm is true, the second part of it is true as well. You see, Mark is, is writing to an audience who was facing persecution. Most scholars believe that, that Mark's audience was, was housed in Rome. And that it was a situation, it was a time when persecution was just starting to break out against Christians there in the capital city of the empire. And so their situation was changing, their circumstance was changing, and, and they weren't really sure what that all meant and, and what their future would hold and, and what that would look like. And so part of what Mark is, is trying to do is, is portray uh, a Jesus who himself suffered and who went through difficulties. And, and in that suffering, he was obedient to God. And in obedience to God, he ultimately became glorified. And so Mark is trying to encourage the believers to follow that same path. And I think part of that journey and part of that instruction plays out here as he portrays and, and pictures Jesus as the great shepherd, the one who causes us to lie down in green pastures, who, who brings life out of the desert of life, who brings hope and who brings joy, but who also drives us through those very difficult times and circumstances. How does Psalm 23 end? Recall with me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. To be reminded of those words is to be reminded that even though we face chaotic times, even though we face hurt and we face pain and we face sorrow and we face grief in this world, that God has not abandoned us. And though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we, we will fear no evil. And that His power and His majesty and His awesomeness is so great and so magnificent and so significant that he allows us to eat in the presence of our enemies. 
We don't have to worry about what the world may do to us. We don't have to worry about those who oppose us. For greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And if God be for me, who can stand against me? To see that truth is to be encouraged. And I believe that's where Mark is trying to lead his audience. It's where he's trying to lead us. It's to recognize that Palm Sunday and our misunderstanding was met first and foremost by clarity on the Friday that followed when Jesus hung on the cross and declared, it is finished. The battle that has been waged is over. The debt that was owed has been paid. I have come. I have accomplished exactly what I came to do. And then the empty tomb three days later tells us that death is not the end. And that great enemy that is present for all of us and that impacts our life in so many different ways has been defeated, that Christ has conquered, that the shepherd is victorious and he provides a way for his sheep to find the abundant life he promised us we'd have. This week, as I hope you reflect upon the events of the Passion Week. As you think about where Jesus was on each day of the week so many years ago, I hope you're reminded that as a shepherd, he goes before us. As a shepherd, he makes our path straight. As a shepherd, he provides for us in ways we'll never fully appreciate. And as a shepherd, he will see us to our final destination in a way that only he can. May we be shepherds as well who lead a lost, confused, and struggling sheep to the one who can give them clarity and life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Son. We thank you for his gift of life and hope and joy. We thank you that we can walk with him, that we can follow him, that we can trust in him. God, help us to be a people who are telling others about how good, how great our shepherd is. Go with us this week. 
Help us to truly walk in remembrance of what you accomplished through your Son on that cross. In Christ's name I pray.